Well, it is good to be with you and your, your team. Uh, I got to spend some time last night with Pastor Matt, and uh, he is the smartest guy in the room, I'm just telling you, uh, at least that room that we were at. Uh, but uh, he is just amazing, and I'm so excited to see what God is doing here. And, and Holly, as always, is just full of life and uh, uh, impressive, and I've been to camps with her, not your camps, but camps down at Indian Lake. And uh, she's a gift to your church, and you know that. And uh, I got to meet Sarah uh, online when we gave her her first district license, which she's going to receive at Indian Lake here in a couple weeks. Uh, but uh, again, I'm just thinking, wow, there's another one from that place that is just awesome and amazing. She could articulate our positions and our faith as well as anybody I have ever heard. And uh, we were blessed to listen to her tell us why she chose to be a Nazarene and uh, what a gift that was. And you know your pastor and his family are amazing. Uh, and I, I, I love spending time with Pastor Aaron. Uh, he is on our district advisory board now and uh, adds a lot to the conversation. And uh, we are praying that he will be uh, renewed, refreshed, uh, energized, and learn something while he's on his sabbatical. And uh, while he's spending some time uh, in Israel, God, I'm just uh, uh, jealous. I'll just be honest. Uh, that sounds really cool to go with your son to, uh, to Israel and hang out like that. And uh, what a gift. Deb and I, uh, Deb, my wife, as uh, Holly said, teaches kindergarten in Charlotte. And uh, she is in a all ele early elementary building with nine kindergarten classes and three developmental kindergarten classes and a couple other special classes. So it's all five-year-olds in there. And uh, it is quite the adventure. Uh, and uh, she uh, lets me come in and help her every once in a while. Uh, and so it's been, been good to be a part of that. And uh, she loves uh, kids. And so, yes, tying ribbons on pop bottles or whatever kind of bottles those were is just a natural thing. She always uh, is doing stuff like that. Well, Deb and I just returned from uh, General Assembly uh, General Assembly is the gathering of the Church of the Nazarene. Uh, our tribe gathers together every uh, four years, typically. This was a six-year span because of COVID, and so we were anxious to be together. And on Sunday morning, uh, on uh, District Assembly, our General Assembly, we got to worship with uh, 12,500 people together in the, in the Indiana Convention Center. Uh, the, the music was amazing, and it was exciting to be part of something like that. And, uh, you know, when we gather together from, uh, uh, we, we, have, we have churches in 164 different countries, the Church of Nazarene does, and uh, 100 of those countries were able to be in Indianapolis. 64 of those countries were either unable to raise the funds or to get the papers to come to the United States. And so they participated by, by the internet and got to be part of the story. Uh, but it's just something amazing about being with all those people. And uh, they, they translated our documents into six different languages, but there were 14 different languages being interpreted into the uh, hearing uh, buds so that they could hear what was going on during our worship and our gathering together. And it's just, it's just incredible. And the thing that's most incredible, well, I love being at General Assembly because you get to hang out with people that you've seen all over your course of ministry. Deb and I have served in four different states and on seven different churches. 
And uh, we got to see people from all over the place. I've been on more than 30 work and witness trips and gotten to be a part of ministries all over around the world in all kinds of different places. And so we got to see those folks and to renew relationships. And, and it's always incredible to me as we gather together. Uh, you know, we gathered together. I, I saw, I got to sit down and talk with a pastor who um, pastors a church under a shade tree in Africa of about 12 people. And uh, they, they call it a preaching point until they get to tw- tw- uh, 10 or 15, 20 people, and then they call it a church there. And uh, we got to see some of those kind of folks. And then we got to see, uh, I, met, I got to see a pastor that uh, pastors our, our Nazarene church in Cali, Colombia, uh, the House of Prayer uh, Church in Cali, Colombia, which I got to go to about 10 years ago. And Pastor uh, Alberto uh, was there, and, uh, and his church uh, was, was running about 15,000 people until they decided to plant a new church. And now they're running about 4,000, or excuse me, 9,000 people. So that means they sent 5,000 people to uh, plant a church uh, and, uh, in Cali, Columbia. And I, when I went down there several years ago, there was about 100 of us pastors standing in line at immigration. And uh, when we were standing there, they're checking people in, checking our passports, all the stuff they do. And some guy, the guy that was checking me, he says, what in the world are all you people doing here in Cali, Columbia? Don't you know about Cali, Columbia? And he was describing the, uh, the challenges that Cali uh, faces when it comes to the, the drug, or drug community and, and the, the gangs and the imprisonments and all the things that are part of that. And uh, I said, well, don't you know that there is a church of the Nazarene in the center of that community that runs around 10,000 people? I guess it was around 7,000 in those days uh, that, uh, that is making a huge impact. He says, no, is that where you guys all came here for? We go, yeah, we're all here to learn how they do it in Colombia. So uh, we had a great time doing that. But uh, there's just something about being there. And, uh, uh, you know, um, Holly describes me as as the boss of the Michigan district, and uh, that's kind of a, a kind of an interesting phrase. I just tell you, you know, yes, this job is very different. Uh, it has all the challenges of pastoring without the benefits. I don't get to ba- dedicate babies. I don't get to do baptisms. Uh, I don't get to do weddings very often. I've got one coming in the in the fall, but uh, it, it's just a whole different kind of a thing. But as you walk around this convention center with thousands and thousands and thousands of Nazarenes, uh, there's really easy for us to just think, you know, in the big picture, what I do is pretty insignificant compared to pastoring a church under a tree in Africa or pastoring a church like the Church of Prayer in or the House of Prayer in Cali, Colombia. Or even the, the role of our general superintendents. You know, if I'm the, the boss of this group, I have to have six bosses to keep me under control. We have six general superintendents that, that I have to answer to. And, uh, and it's just, it's easy to look at this group and to say, you know, I'm in the big picture, I'm really a nobody. I'm just, you know, in middle management, so to speak. Uh, and, uh, and it's really easy to think, think that, you know, I just, I just, I don't have that big of a role compared to all the things that are going on in the Church of the Nazarene. 
I heard a guy once say, I'm just a nobody. And, and you know what we tend to do when we say things like that is this kind of um, self-deprecating. Uh, uh, I'm not a big, you know, I'm not a big player. I don't have a big role. I don't have a lot. And I said, well, tell me why you think you're nobody. And he said this with a straight face. I'm a nobody because nobody is perfect. And uh, I thought that was kind of interesting. That's a pretty bold statement. And today we're going to talk about what does it mean what, is, what does it mean when the Scripture calls believers, those of us who are Christ followers, what does it mean when the Scripture calls us to live a life of perfection? What is that about? That seems almost impossible. And, uh, and yet Scripture talks about that again and again and again. In fact, you're going to hear this multiple times because I need to reinforce it. In fact, in the New Testament... The Greek word that we sometimes translate perfection comes up a hundred times just in the, in the 27 books of the New Testament. So there is some purpose why God included that phrase in Scripture, and I'm praying that by the time we're done here today, you won't go out of here saying, well, that was a great kind of one of those uh, lofty sermons that really doesn't matter because I can never live up to that. But I pray that we will have the Spirit of God quicken in our hearts well enough to know that what does that mean and how can I engage in what God thinks is important. Well, we're talking about the identity that we have as in, in Christ. And, and uh, uh, throughout the New Testament, uh, the, the authors that write the New Testament speak about uh, the, our identity in different ways. One of those authors is Peter, one of the disciples of Christ. Peter was one of the original 12 uh, Peter would have what we would describe in today's culture, foot and mouth disease, which means he often put his foot in his mouth because he would say things that he shouldn't say. He would speak when he should be quiet. Uh, he, would, uh, he would make promises that he couldn't keep. And, uh, and often we, uh, we, we probably remember that G, uh, Jesus said, Peter, you're going uh, gonna, to gonna, um, reject me. You're going to deny you even know me. And Peter says, oh, no, 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 I won't ever do that. And, uh, and, he, and three times they had this kind of conversation back and forth. And, uh, and Jesus says, you just, just wait, it's going to happen. And, and we know this, that uh, uh, Peter did deny Jesus at the, at the fire when the little girl asked him, Don't, aren't you one of his disciples? But Peter writes these words about what our identity in Christ is about. He says, our identity includes that we are accepted by God. We are loved by God. We are valuable to the heart of God. We are forgiven. And this is, I think, one of the most unique things that Peter would say. We are capable of being what God has called us to be. The man who sometimes was a wreck when it comes to following God would say that God has made us capable of being what he's called us to be. Another author in the New Testament, he actually wrote almost a third of the New Testament. His name is the Apostle Paul. And although Paul was not one of the 12 disciples that followed Christ, uh, he had an encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus. He was out to, to get rid of the Christians because he was true and faithful to the Jewish sect. And, uh, and Jesus met him on the road to Damascus in this vision, this, this unbelievable experience. And he says, Paul, why are you or Saul, why are you persecuting me? Uh, this is what God has intended for the people, and, and Paul's heart has changed. Saul's heart has changed. They call him Paul, and he becomes one of the greatest leaders in the church 
a theologian among theologians, and Paul says about our identity, we are holy and blameless, not by our efforts, but by the gift from God as we surrender to his power and direction in our lives. And I heard Holly talking about that for our students, your students, as they came home from camp, that they would learn what it means to follow the heart and the direction of God. And then we look at this, uh, at Jesus, arguably the best teacher of all time, who was able to gather crowds, hundreds and thousands of people who would listen to him. And even though they didn't always understand everything he said, uh, he made a huge impact in their lives. In just the three years of his ministry, he was remarkable in helping people know what it means to understand the heart of God. He, he, he came to demonstrate to us as God living among us, he came to demonstrate to us what it means to follow the heart of God. And Jesus uses this words in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, a part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says to all of us, be perfect, therefore, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. He said it more than that, more than just the one time. He said it to the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, I have followed all the rules all of my life. And he says, what do I have to do to inherit the kingdom? And he was thinking Jesus was going to say, you've done it all. You're ready. And Jesus says, oh, there's one thing that you lack. In the Bible, and I love it how it says it in Mark. He said, Jesus looked at him and loved him and said, there's one thing you lack. Go and sell everything you have and follow me. And he says, then, uh, then you will be perfect. Uh, if you want to be perfect, this is how you're going to be perfect. So we have been taught in our understanding of humanity that we are not perfect. At times, uh, we have used it as an excuse, right? I'm just a human. I'm not perfect. I can't do what I've called, been called to do. And yet we have to wrestle with this idea that 100 times in the New Testament, the word, the Greek word that we translate perfect comes to us as a, as a calling, as a teaching, as, as a structure for our lives. And we, we just kind of try, well, you know, that's a great idea. That's a, that's a really interesting, Pastor Brad, but I, you don't know me. And, uh, and I think I could probably, I think you're saying to yourself, I could probably see that you're not always perfect either. And we even try to justify our imperfection or our bad habits or our vices. Gary uh, Thomas, who wrote a book called Devotions for a Sacred Marriage, he's write, written another book, well, he's written dozens of books. One of the most impactful in my life was uh, Pathways, Sacred Pathways on the different ways that we can be engaged in the sacred or in the spiritual things of life. Uh, he was writing uh, about this idea of perfection, and he wrote these words. I don't look at porn. I don't rent dirty movies at the hotel. I don't get drinks at the bar. I don't even enjoy an occasional cigar on the golf course. What's so bad about a daily Pepsi? Now, his wife was giving him a little grief because he was known as uh, the man who liked to drink Pepsi. Now, my wife would wrestle with this whole idea because she thinks Pepsi tastes like towels smell at a truck stop, a dirty uh, paper towel smell at a truck stop. I don't know what that tastes like, but apparently Pepsi. Uh, uh, but she's a, she's a diet coker, all right? But um, uh, he, he has this habit of drinking a diet Pepsi every, every, uh, every day. And his wife said it was bad for him. Apparently it was 
It was the, the sugar kind, maybe, I don't know, maybe it was the diet kind. I don't know, but they're both probably bad for us, right? And he says, can't I have one stinking vice? Just one? You encourage me to give up the very thing that I enjoy, he says. Now, Gary Thomas is a, is a runner. He's run marathons. He's an avid uh, golfer. He's a great, great preacher, uh, a writer, uh, wrote, written some powerful things. And he says, I just, I just have one vice. Everything else I do well. He goes on with his thinking. He says, can't I have one stinking vice? This mindset has infected my spiritual journey, he says. It is by no means about the soda. Husbands may say, look, I don't have affairs. I don't gamble the mortgage money. I'm home in the evenings. And yes, occasionally I lose my temper and I wound my spouse with a few careless words. Aren't I allowed at least one vice? He goes on in his book about sacred marriage to say, wives may say that I've been a faithful wife. I don't bust the family budget. Uh, I'm there for my family. And yes, maybe occasionally I talk negatively about my husband behind his back when he really ticks me off. But that's it. That's all. I think he's pretty good. Can't I have one vice? We excuse something we know we should change we ignore it based on the faulty assumption that nobody's perfect. But the Bible doesn't give us permission for that. Now, I'll be honest with you, this is a hard teaching. It's a, a teaching we have to wrestle with in our spirits. And I know that you're wrestling right now in your mind thinking, well, I'm not going to be perfect. And I don't know what this sermon's about, but it's probably off target. But the Bible doesn't give us permission to ignore one little vice. Let me tell you what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and Corinth was a church full of vices probably, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, it says this, Purify yourselves from everything that contaminates the body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence from the Lord, or for the Lord. The author of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14 says this, For by the one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Now in that sentence alone, there are some, some Greek uh, uh, tenses that we don't even have in our, in our language. There's this tense of, of something that, that happens in a moment that continues to happen until we reach the place of, of complete maturity and ultimately until we get to heaven. But there's this idea of something started in us. We are being made perfect. But he also says, has been made perfect forever. Now the Greek word is teleo, and it uh, literally means uh, to consummate character, to consecrate, to finish, to fulfill, to made perfect, to be made perfect. And it appears how many times in the New Testament? More than a hundred times. We can't ignore this principle. We can't ignore this thought. The English Standard Version says it like this: For by a single offering. God has perfected for all time those who are being, and this is the word Nazarene's love, those who are being sanctified. It literally means growth, 
mental and moral character. It means completeness. It literally means being of full age or grown-up adults. It means perfect, complete, without wavering, even to the very end. In a few months or a few weeks, I guess, you're going to start studying the book of James uh, after all the guest preachers are done and, and Holly and uh, Matt are going to preach to you, you're going to go through the book of James. But in James chapter 1, verse 4, it says this, Your endurance has a chance to grow, so let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be what? Perfect and complete, needing nothing. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13, it says this, This will continue until we come to such unity and faith and knowledge of, the, of God's Son, and we will be made mature, or the Greek word perfect, in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Now, most of you would be able to quote to me today the, the passage of Scripture from uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. For we know that all things work together for good. Who, those who love God are called according to His purpose, right? We probably know that. You've probably heard that before. It's powerful Scripture, and it's uh, this promise that God is at work even in the hard, difficult, challenging things in our lives. But if we, if we read what that purpose is, we read the next verse where it says this, it was God's plan from the beginning. Or you were predestined to what? To be conformed to the likeness of Christ, who was without sin. So this idea of perfection, this idea, this calling that God has given to us about being more than what we are at now, being, being challenged and directed to experience what he has for us, is so much more than just uh, following a list of rules. It is allowing the character of my heart to be shaped towards the things that matter to God. In a, in a TED Talk, a guy named John Bowers says this, We should aim for perfection, not fearing failure. I remember as a young high school or a young college student just out of high school, now going to college, studying to be a pastor, I remember writing a paper on what does it mean to live into this calling that God has given to us of holiness. And I, I wrote in this paper that, that oftentimes we think that we come up short from this call of perfection, and so we give up. We stop trying. We, 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 we lay it aside. And because of that, often we have this, self, this spiritual self-esteem that stinks. I can't be what God's called me to be. I've tried. I try really hard. But I'm at the altar all the time praying about what I've done wrong. And uh, how can I be perfect? How can I be holy? How can I be what God has called me to be, conformed into the image of Christ? How can I do that? And uh, so in this TED Talk, uh, John Bowers talks about uh, things, little things that matter. And one of the little things that matter he calls uh, typo squatting. That's when a, a, uh, an internet-savvy person will take a, a, uh, a typical website like gmail.com and will alter one or two letters or maybe alter with a word that says the same thing but doesn't mean the same thing. And people will come to their website thinking they've gone to Gmail or to Microsoft or whatever else. They say that literally they rake in millions of dollars by drawing people to the wrong site by just a letter or two spelled differently. Think about this. 
an engineer from Amazon working on some code for their, their, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the Walmart of the internet, right? Uh, and, uh, and so he was writing code for Amazon and he mistyped one word in his code that literally produced such a slowdown at Amazon that in four hours, it cost them $160 million in revenue in just four hours. And these, these, these uh, examples are scary, uh, but nothing compared to, to what happened in New England where a company, a pharmaceutical company, uh, manufacturing drugs that we use to try to keep us healthy, the, the person who was cleaning the lab did not clean the lab thoroughly enough, and 76 people died from meningitis that was was in that lab that wasn't cleaned properly, and 700 more got sick from that. These are crazy examples when we come to a world that we live in where these type of things are common, and it, and it kind of goes to this, this idea of, well, do your best. It's kind of a do your best attitude. If you did your best, then that's all that really matters. Or, um, or it's good enough. These things become acceptable, and at some point we've stopped valuing perfection, and now these type of results we get. And he goes on to say that when we think we should all seek perfection at all the time, and he says, I think we need to get to it quick. John, this TED Talk man, was a driver's ed uh, teacher as well. He teaches his students to pay attention when they're driving down the road. He says that when you come to an intersection... You need to clear and make sure there's no traffic coming either way. So you clear every intersection, you clear every cross street, you clear every side street, you clear every parking lot, even dirt roads, every crosswalk, every intersection without fail. You make sure they're all safe. When you're driving a car, it counts. A car traveling at 55 miles an hour will go the length of a football field in 4.5 seconds. Consequent or coincidentally, that's the same as how much time it takes you to check your text on your phone. 4.5 seconds, you've gone the length of a football field. You don't know what's out there because you've been looking at your phone, right? It matters where your focus is. It matters what you're paying attention to. And one vice is just not acceptable. Even 99.9% perfection brings us up short. Makers of our credit cards, the cards that we use every day to pay all those bills that we are, if they were 99.9% effective, there would be over a million cards in circulation today that had the wrong information on the magnetic strip or the little chip. Or if we were only 99.9% effective in, in uh, editing the uh, Webster Dictionary, there would be 470 words that are misspelled there. Or if our doctors were 99.9% correct every year, then 4.4 million, 4 .4 million prescriptions would be written incorrectly. Or this is maybe the most frightening. If our hospitals were 99.9% perfect, only missed on the 0.1%, 11 newborn babies would be given to the wrong parents every day in the United States. We wouldn't tolerate any of that, right? No way in the world would that happen. So when it comes down to uh, this trying our best, it's just not good enough. 
Now be careful as you listen. Because there's an extreme on either of these. The extreme of, of uh, following a list of rules, thinking that I've got it all together, I've done everything the way that God tells me I'm supposed to do that, that, that leans towards legalism, right? We follow a list of rules. Following the rules doesn't make us perfect. Following the rules perfectly doesn't make us perfect. The other side of that is tolerance, right? And God's grace is extravagant and it is unmeasurable. And, but without truth, grace without truth is just tolerance. And in some ways, we border on that today, don't we, in our culture? Anything goes. Make space for everybody, right? And I'm not suggesting we don't uh, uh, demonstrate the love of God to everyone. That is absolutely not what I'm talking about. But God has invited us to a tr follow a truth that he has laid out before us. So you should also consider yourselves, according to Scripture, dead to the power of sin and alive to God. In Romans chapter 6, verse 11, it tells us that we have this, this capacity, not because we uh, have done something, but because Christ has done something. And in fact, you sang about it today. There's, there's the cross, which is so valuable and important to us in our Christian faith, but there's also an empty tomb. And the cross is not the end of the story. In fact, our cross is empty because Jesus is no longer on the cross. And the tomb is empty because he was resurrected from the dead. And the same power that raised, are you listening? The same power that raised Christ from the dead is available for you to live the life that God has called you to live. To be holy and blameless in his sight. So how do we change? We seek perfection and settle for nothing less. When Paul was writing to the church of Philippi, he wrote these words. I do not mean to say that I've already achieved these things or I have already reached perfection. But I press on to possess the perfection for which Christ Jesus called me first, or first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it. But I focus on one thing, forgetting the past, looking forward to what lies ahead, and I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God has called us through Christ Jesus. Let all who are spiritually perfect or mature agree on these things. Now, I know you. I need to give you a minute to think about this. We've been told, right, that, uh, that we, are, we are human beings. It's impossible to be perfect. So therefore, seeking perfection will not only ruin our self-esteem, it will render us a failure. And we like to quote scripture that says things like this in Romans chapter 7. I really don't understand myself, for I want to do what's right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. I want to do what's good, but I don't do that either. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. Verse 24, chapter 7, the book of Romans. What a miserable wreck I am. What a miserable person I am. I'm a human and I will never be perfect until I get to heaven. Now, listen. Instead of defining perfectionism as destructive and unattainable, why don't we give it a biblical definition? 
To say that seeking perfection is too stressful is like saying that exercise is too exhausting. In both cases, if you want the results, you've got to endure the effort. So truthfully saying that I'm seeking perfection is too stressful is an excuse. Are you listening? It's an excuse for us to be spiritually lazy. At some point, because it's too difficult or too painful, we decided to dismiss God's call and replace it with a lower acceptance level. And now we're forced to sit back and accept a new norm that says, good enough. Have you ever heard that phrase, good enough for who it's for? Now, I'm, I am a, a do-it-yourselfer, and uh, I, I, I shingle my own roof, I work on my own cars, I build stuff in my garage, I, I'm, I'm a do-it-yourselfer. And sometimes when I'm working on stuff, I, I measure twice and I cut once, but it still comes out wrong. I don't know, maybe I'm supposed to measure three times, I don't know. Or maybe I should use a thinner marker instead of a a big fat marker. But whatever happens, it comes out different than I intended. And sometimes I think to myself, well, I'm, I'm, I'm making this for myself, so it's good enough for who it's for. But as believers, who are we called to live for? Who is our spiritual walk for? Paul says in Colossians that everything you do is to be an act of worship to our Heavenly Father. In Romans chapter 7, verse 24 and 25, it says, Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death or imperfection? Thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Who, and again, from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, or verse 14, for by one sacrifice he has made, past tense, he has made perfect forever those, now this is where it gets complicated, who are being made perfect. It says that it's happened and it is continually, continuously happening. It's kind of like when you hear Jesus says the kingdom of God is here. And maybe you've heard your pastor, Pastor Aaron, say the kingdom of God is here but not yet fully. Have you ever heard that? The same principle is that God has called us to live in his truth and he is continuing to shape us and mold us as we make this journey. God is making us to be what he's called us to be. Now again, going back to Paul, writing to the church in Galatia now in chapter 3, verse 3, he says, how foolish can you be? After starting your new lives in the spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human efforts. Now, if you don't hear anything else I say this morning, hear these words. What if life isn't about us trying to be perfect, but learning to trust the one who is? What if our life isn't about us following the rules perfectly, but learning to trust the one who is and has? Agree with God that he has called us to a life of perfection. He has called us to a life of maturity. In Roman, or excuse me, in Psalms chapter 19, it says this, verse 12. How can I know the sins all lurking in my heart? Cleanse me from these hidden faults. Keep your servant away from deliberate sins. Don't let them control me. Then I will be free from guilt and innocent of great sin. May the words of my mouth 
and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. We are called, invited, commanded, and taught from Scripture to partner with the Holy Spirit to be what God has called us to be. Not to do it on our own effort. That's legalism. And we have, we have a history of that, if anything. We have a history of that in the Church of the Nazarene. Can't go to movies. Can't use playing cards. Can't, can't drink. Can't smoke. Can't go with girls to do, right? You know, we can't do any of those kind of things. God has called us through Paul to say we are need to, to press on, to focus, to forget the past, and to look forward. Why don't we try defining perfectionism as willingness or surrender to do what's difficult to achieve and what is right? Are we letting our difficulties and our failures shape us rather than set the standard? In James chapter 1, verse 4, I'm going to read it again. When you face difficulties, your, insurance, your uh, endurance, your insurance, I, I need insurance, right? Your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. And then when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Several years ago, my wife and I lived in Colorado Springs. Uh, it was in the 90s. It was when the Colorado Rockies decided to start a franchise, a baseball franchise, in, uh, in Colorado, in Denver specifically. And I'll be honest with you, I'm not a baseball fan. I think baseball is boring, at least to watch. I'll, I'll, I'll play it, but I don't like to watch it. But we were living in Colorado during that time, and I thought, you know, this is kind of a one-time shot. And so uh, this brand-new franchise, brand-new uh, team started in Colorado. And so I went down to the store, and I bought a memento to say I was living in Colorado when the Rockies started. And so I bought this mug, and it says on the front, it says Colorado Rockies. And I said, I'm going to put that on my shelf, and someday when I'm older, I'll be able to remember that when the Colorado Rockies uh, um, started, I lived there in Colorado, and I was there when it happened. So I went to the store, I bought the uh, mug, I put it in my backpack, I went out to my motorcycle, which I was riding those days, and I flung my leg over the uh, motorcycle, and as I did that, uh, um, uh, this mug went tumbling out and hit the ground. And it broke in half. Now, this is not what I would define as a half a cup of coffee. <clears throat> this, is, this is a mug that has absolutely no capacity to give you coffee. In fact, I have never drank a single drop out of this cup of coffee. It got broken before I even got to where I was going to put it on the shelf. But this broken, mangled, handle-missing mug is perfect for what I purchased it for. I purchased this to remember the Rockies and that I was living in Colorado when it happened. And it sits on my shelf even today. And not only does it remind me of the Rockies uh, when they started, but it also reminds me of this principle that we can be broken and less than what we intend to be, less than even what God has called us to be, and still be perfect uh, in line with his heart. My wife reads a book every, uh, every so often. It's a devotional book, and she loves uh, reading it. And, uh, and it says this. It's uh, a book called um, The Secrets of the Christian Life by Hannah Withall Smith. And it writes these words. The purest of all loves 
is a will so filled with the will of God that there remains nothing else. But in giving up our wills, we are not meant to empty ourselves of willpower. We are simply meant to substitute our own foolish, misdirected wills of ignorance and immaturity for the perfect and beautiful and wise will of God. God has invited us to experience something more. Something more than perfect actions, but perfect purpose. Let me read it to you again from Romans chapter 8. We know that God causes everything to work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. You know, one of the, uh, the characters of the Old Testament that we highly esteem, written many of the Psalms, his name was King David. Well, he started as young shepherd boy David, right? And, uh, and he uh, slew uh, Goliath with the rock. You remember that? Five smooth stones from the, from the stream. Uh, he became king. And, uh, and the Bible often describes King David is a man who had a whole heart for God. If you were to look at the first three kings of the Old Testament, King uh, uh, Saul was described as having no heart for God. King Solomon was described as having half a heart for God because he, he, was, he was willing to compromise and dilute his faith by, by, by many of his choices. But the Bible often describes David as having a whole heart for God. But David had a lot of brokenness. He wasn't a great husband, committed adultery on the rooftop with Bathsheba. He wasn't a great dad. He didn't raise his kids in the way that they should go, and, and he paid dearly for his children's rebellion. David wasn't perfect in his actions, but the Bible describes him as one who had a whole heart for God. Because perfection is not about perfect performance. It's about lining up with the purpose of God by his spirit empowering us to be what he's called us to be. What if our life isn't about us trying to be perfect, but rather learning to trust and reflect the one who is? Let's pray together. Our gracious Father, I thank you for your goodness, your mercy, and your grace. That even in our shortcomings, you look at us differently than we see ourselves. According to Scripture, you see us as who you made us to be. Father, will you help us to live into that calling? Not to excuse it and say, well, I'll never be all that God called me to be, but to surrender to your Spirit living in us shaping us and molding us to be the people you've called us to be. Even in the midst of our brokenness, our, our just simply not being there sometime, half gone like the cup, will you help us to remember that our job is to reflect your heart. Give us your power and your strength to do that very thing. Don't give us another list of rules. Help us to list our, to line our heart up with yours so that we could be the people you've called us to be. In the strong, strong name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.